Okay, hang on. What episode is this? Fifteen. Okay, welcome to. Yeah. Han- <laughs> I can't believe we made it fifteen episodes. <laughs> I would have figured that would have taken us at least a year. <laughs> I can't either. Well, welcome to Hammer Factor episode fifteen. I'm John Grace, and you are listening to the one and only Hammer Factor. We have Whitewater Legend IR owner. Kara Weld, special guest on the line with us this week. Hi, Kara. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's uh, we're we're trying to end the sausage fest here. You broke <laughs> our streak. Thank you. Um, also, um, we have uh, Kara's assistant and whitewater legend John Weld on the line. John, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good, right, Kara? <laughs> He's okay. Okay. This, I'm okay, guys. This could get interesting. This could. <laughs> this show really could get interesting. And our most important guest, water polo legend and whitewater character policy council for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. How's it going, buddy? Ah, uh, surviving the dream. Surviving the dream. Let's get right into kind of your topic of conversation. Lead us off um, with the Congressional Review Act, and I believe. <clears throat> John, uh, Mr. Weld, you have some email dialogue, and let's just let's just get into that. Yeah. So uh, last week, I don't know. So where to start? Uh, let's start. Congress let's, start right. let's start with the Congressional Review. Exactly what that is. Yeah. So right now, I think I'm sure people are seeing a ton of these like really threatening environmental bills that are coming through Congress, and the majority of what's happening right now are things that are under the Congressional Review Act, which is this law that was passed maybe, I want to say in the 90s, but has only been used once, and it allows Congress to uh, basically pass a resolution disapproving of uh, rulemaking by an administrative agency that passed or was finalized in the last 60 legislative days. So a lot of rulemaking is on you know, all sorts of things, but especially environmental topics kind of finished at the end of the Obama administration. And now there's, you know, the Republicans have the House and the Senate and the Republican in the White House. And so they can undo all these rulemakings that, you know, usually, you know, typically what would have played out over the course of years, but if they were finalized at the end of the Obama administration, Congress can just say, just throw out the entire rulemaking. So why did... I mean, why did Obama, I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it, but but why wait to the last 60 days to do these? Because especially knowing Trump's coming to office, they're going to get they're going to get thrown out. So that's, I think, a really common misconception that becomes one of the talking points for the Republicans on throwing out a lot of these rules is they're saying, oh, this is like a midnight rulemaking or they just threw this thing out at the last minute. But the reason that these things end so late is that a typical rulemaking process would take like several years. So like the one that we've been working on the most is this, uh, this BLM planning 2.0 rulemaking that was finalized at the end of last year, um, which basically sort of revamps the process for creating management plans for every BLM unit. And this sounds like unbelievably technical and wonky, but it's actually really important because it creates a ton of new public participation opportunities for how BLM units get managed and like way more opportunity for BLM to like accept mapping data and information from the public on you know where the important places are for recreation and making sure that 
you know, as they create what basically amounts to like a zoning map for a lot of public lands that they're doing a thoughtful job of taking account into recreation. And this whole rulemaking is, it's procedural. It's not substantive, like in the sense that it's not saying, you know, we're not going to have any more oil and gas development here or anything like that. It's just saying, we're going to make sure there's more opportunities for public participation and people to like review this process as it moves along. But I think that there's basically this whole thing, I think it got a little bit sideways with some county commissioners who feel like by opening up the public process, it sort of undercuts the position of local governments in the land management planning process. And they got the ear of some Western Republicans in Congress. And now this thing is on the chopping block, even though it's, you know, really should be non-controversial. But you know, I guess the one thing that we didn't mention earlier about the Congressional Review Act and maybe the biggest problem with it is that it bars the agencies from conducting a substantially similar rulemaking in the future. So if this thing gets thrown out under the CRA, then there's no opportunity for BLM to update their planning regs and sort of modernize the planning process without some action from Congress. So like this, I mean, the CRA... It sounds sort of reasonable in principle, but it's something that has never really been used in the past. And it sort of makes much more sense in the context of a rulemaking where Congress could say, you know, like, no, EPA, we didn't intend for you to regulate uh, carbon dioxide under the Clean Air Act, and you're not allowed to do it anymore. But something like planning, it's like BLM has to do planning, and they have to update, be able to update their planning regs. But if this gets thrown out, there's this whole perspective effect to it that's really problematic in addition to throwing out like a perfectly good rulemaking process. So as, as a, as a subscriber to the outdoor Alliance, uh, emails, I received an alert about, uh, this exact issue and I was instructed to write my senators regarding that. So I did, I wrote, uh, Capito and mansion, uh, mansion did not reply. However, I did get a rather, um, cut and paste looking form letter from Capito uh, that brought up the following points, which you can, uh, which I think is going to uh, raise clear, my clear blood up, pressure. Clear, yeah, well, it's going to clear up some misconceptions I think you have about this whole process here. <laughs> I can't wait for Shelley Moore Capito to enlighten me on BLM planning. Lay it on me, well. Okay, so it says, Dear Ms. Well, thank you. For, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. Thank you for taking the time to contact me or contacting me regarding the BLM planning 2.0 rule. As you know, on November 22nd, 2016, the BLM finalized planning 2.0 rule, one in a series of midnight rules handed down unilaterally from the Obama administration without the consent of Congress. This rule would shift management planning for BLM land away from the affected states and put in the hands of Washington bureaucrats. This rule also constrains numerous economic activities on BLM, clearly violating the multi-use mission that BLM purports to promote. Uh, because this rule is yet another example of the Obama-era regulations that ignore economic hardships imposed by these rules, on January 30th, 2017, Senator Lisa uh, Murkowski of Arkansas introduced Cong uh, Congressional Review Last Act minute. that would nullify this rule. So, uh, I think that's case closed. Sounds like <laughs> sounds to me like he's right on. Slam dunk. Moving along, guys. Let's yeah. uh, <laughs> let's talk about bench half pounds. <laughs> Left hand control. <laughs> <laughs>
gets his important stuff. Um, Lewis, Lewis is crawling up off the floor here. Okay, uh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, I mean, I guess first of all, thank you, John, for following, uh, employing our action alert to contact your senators. It's I've much appreciated. I am actually making. I'm, I'm, I'm asking people every every week at work to take a second during the work day to write their Congress people and senators about these issues that are coming up. Um, and it's been actually awesome. is is a little annoying, if not annoying, but not intimidating, but sort of off putting at first. But now I'm actually kind of grooving on it. <clears throat> That's cool, man. That's good. I know, and like we joke about this, but it really is important. And I guess you know one of the things to sort of identify in this dynamic is. There's no BLM land in West Virginia, as far as I know, or if there is, it's extremely minimal. Yeah. So Shellingworth Capito's interest in this is in like currying favor with Lisa Murkowski, who introduced this legislation and is the uh, chair of Senate Natural Resources Committee or Energy and Natural Resources Committee. And so she looks at this as, you know, sort of a costless favor to do for her Republican colleagues because she is thinking, well, like nobody in West Virginia cares about BLM planning. I can, you know, go along with whoever and, you know, bank a favor, basically. Right. So, you know, she doesn't care. So, you know, it's important that she hears from her constituents and, you know, maybe it's not going to change her vote on this, but maybe in the future when somebody, you know, one of her colleagues is like, hey, let's, you know, let's stick it to BLM. Instead of being like, yeah, sure, sounds good, whatever, she's going to be like, well, you know, like the last time we did this, I got a thousand outraged emails from all the kayakers in West Virginia about this. Like, maybe we should focus on destroying healthcare or whatever instead of <laughs> <laughs> instead of sticking to the BLM. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I think this stuff does have have an effect over the long over the long haul. So it, it is important, even though it seems like a little bit futile sometimes. So what what's the uh, what's the uh, holes in the argument here that she's making? Well, I mean, what we were saying before, first of all, it's not a midnight regulation. I mean, I personally met with BLM. I can think of at least three times over two or three years. I mean, we wrote voluminous comments about this rulemaking. I mean, it was conducted with an unbelievable amount of public input from outdoor recreation community, from hunters and anglers, from local governments. I mean, this is not something that BLM you know, did in a dark conference room on December 31st. So she's lying about that or he's lying about that. Can, uh, we, can we say that? She's certainly mistaken. Okay. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> you, you can say whatever you want. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, and she said something in there about, about shifting power to DC at all, which is just, it's not correct. It, uh, you know, this, this rulemaking process or this new process for creating uh, resource management plans for BLM units, it creates way more transparency, way more opportunities for public input. And all of the planning is done, you know, at the local or regional level. It's not, DC is not making any decisions about, I mean, DC sets overarching policy, but in terms of specific land use decisions, that all happens in the field. So, you know, that's wrong. Um, I mean, I think she said something in there about economic you know, uh, yeah. constraints. Again, I mean, there's no real uh, substantive requirements in there in the sense of changing 
you know, the balance of activity on BLM land, it's procedural. It's about opening up new opportunities for people to participate in the process. And I mean, I think it says something that people who are opposing this rulemaking read the, po the possibility of opening up the process to more people as a threat to, you know, essentially extractive industry. So let me ask you a question. It seems like how, how much of your job is putting together hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months worth of research and preparation on very complicated subjects only to be re refuted and shut down by lawmakers who have little to no understanding or knowledge of the issue at hand. They're regurgitating talking points that could apply to any one of 300 uh, generic conservative platform type issues. Or is this something that's new that's happening where you're just reaching a new level of of not you know lawmakers not even registering what you're saying at all in any way shape or form is this is this business as usual where you do this work and the lawmakers who, who don't know anything about the issue shoot it down or is this something that's new um i think there's always been lawmakers who are like that who want to just kind of just don't really want to hear it or don't want to engage in that way but i think it is getting worse in a way I think that we're thinking a lot about how we sort of reorient our advocacy to deal with this dynamic. Like I think in the past, you know, it was really easy when, you know, Congress was more moderate and there were, you know, Obama was in the white house to sort of make those reasoned arguments and for, you know, organizations like outdoor Alliance or like American whitewater to sort of go to DC and speak on behalf of our community on behalf of our members and I think it's becoming more and more important, you know, we'll continue to do that, but I think it's becoming more and more important that we sort of empower everybody to speak on our own behalf, right? It's like to make sure that we're not just explaining why this is, you know, going to have a, a bad effect, but also coupling that with, you know, thousands of angry constituents telling their lawmakers that this matters to them, because that's what really moves the needle on these things. So it's, it's not just, you know, I can send a 10 page letter to Shelly Moore Capito about why this is, why she's wrong, but she's not going to care until she hears from 2000 John Welds. So oh, that's, that's an awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, but it's good, right? I mean, everybody's fired up and like, we, we can do this. We can do it. I mean, and, do you think there's, do you think there's a, a, a like, I, I have a feeling that, organizations like yours have never gotten as much attention or like I'm hearing like nonprofits suddenly being flushed with cash from donations. And we're going to, I have another question about that here in a second, but are you guys getting, are you getting a lot more participation now for it? Yeah, for, people like for me? sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. And it's awesome. I mean, it's really good. And I think it's a little bit of a challenge for us because we're a very, you know, we're a small lean organization and, you know, a lot of times, you know, some, terrible piece of legislation will get introduced and I'll, I'll see it and I'll be like, well, like that's going nowhere or I don't have time to work on this right now. I'll get to it. You know, when it gets a committee hearing or something, you know, it starts to move and something, you know, it starts to look more threatening. But now it's like, I wake up in the morning and I have like an email from John Grace being like, <laughs> like what's going on with this thing? <laughs> get off your ass, dude. Get up. Wake up. You know? And so I think like, that's important for us to recognize that and, 
be a, like more timely in sort of like providing interpretation and guidance to everybody in our community on what's going on here. Like I think everybody is rightly alarmed about what's going on. And I think that it's it needs to be you know the place of outdoor alliance and groups like ours to you know sort of like share that expertise with the community and be like, hey, like this is what's going on. This is why this is happening. Like this is what you can do to make a difference because like. You know, we want to capitalize on everybody's enthusiasm. Like, it, that's what's going to make a difference. And we want to make sure we're, you know, being kind of like leaders in this space and helping everybody be engaged and make a difference. So, so we got a request from you from uh, from your organization for a donation today. I noticed in the email. Uh, what's the correct amount to give? What What do I give that makes me look like I'm contributing, but not like being too cheap about it? To uh, Outdoor Alliance. Yeah. You know, don't say five hundred dollars. I don't know five hundred dollars to send you, but like twenty is that okay? Like twenty bucks is that going to make me? Is that, is I was that thinking cool? like some sort of like tithing program. Just oh like really? Ten percent from here on out. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you guys get your money from? We were Karen and I were talking about this the other day. Where do you guys make? How do you guys? How do you pay your bills? Like who's giving uh, you? We have a mix of foundations, and uh, we get some dues from our member organizations. We get some funding from the outdoor industry and some individual contributions. Is money a constant issue for you guys? Or are you pretty well funded? Um, Careful now. <laughs> I, um, we could do more with more resources, for sure. And I think that we're thinking about how to... Good answer. You, know. you see, the law school paid off, didn't it? <laughs> 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 all right. So, Kara, well, open up the checkbook. Well, well, Lewis, I certainly appreciate all your insight. I mean, I have learned an incredible amount. And I just think it's cool that, um, you know, someone as grounded as you is, you know, in the halls of the Capitol and, you know, making the magic happen. So, Thanks, man. I mean, I think it's an awesome opportunity. Like, I'm really stoked to learn about this stuff and do this stuff. It's, like, super interesting to me, and I'm glad. I like that we have – I like that you guys are interested in it, and we can talk about it on the podcast, and I'm glad that people aren't, like, I hope, fast-forwarding through this part to get to the left-hand control battle <laughs> conversations all the time, although maybe they are. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, look, if you don't know where to get started with Outdoor Alliance, go to their website. They've got a really cool little Get Involved button. You start by signing up to receive the action alerts. Um, mm -hmm. they come with all kinds of info and makes it real easy to, to contact your representatives. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good thing. Thanks, thank, thank, thanks for that, Lewis. Thanks for that, John. Some good, uh, good info there. I'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll continue with this discussion. All right, moving on. We got some news. Um, if you guys didn't realize California has been, uh, getting clobbered, it is on record to be the wettest season ever in the history of recording water flowing in the state. The tallest dam in the United States is basically bursting, and it seems right now, um, Orville Dam on Lake Orville. Uh, have you guys seen or heard of any of this? Yeah. I mean, I the last time I was down there, I mean, it was like historically low. I mean, it, it blows my mind that there's so much water that this thing is flowing over the top right now. It's just feast or famine down there, huh? It is. The pattern is it's either the faucet's on or the faucet's off. Um, some stats, you know, there was well over 100,000 CFS flowing into Lake Orville on the Feather River. You! For... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like we should orient everybody 
you know, this Oracle Dam is it's on the Feather River, which is, you know, a ton of whitewater classics flowing into Lake Oroville, basically. Like, if you run Baldrock Canyon, you come out onto Lake Oroville, and you either have to paddle out to the marina or rent, like, a houseboat to run you out to the dam. Um, yeah, to give a perspective, when you're running Baldrock, what is it, 1,000 CFS in there or something like that? You know? Yeah, I think Middle Feather was up, like, over 40 last week. Yeah, and so... So these 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 are like river bottom changing type water levels. Oh yeah, right. We're going to see a new rapids and stuff in here following this this event. Yeah, um, I you know I, I don't know that for sure, but I would definitely say that these are it's huge. It's huge, and you can look online. It's all over CNN, ABC, all the fake news sites, and you can <laughs> check out you know and see, and see it happening. They've got live coverage going on right now. It's 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 something you to have see. to cut. You have to cut to the media bias though. Yes, exactly. I, you know, and there's they're pretty powerful with their editing abilities. But anyway, I called Dave Steindorf, the uh, American Whitewater West Coast man. Um, Dave's an awesome guy, and I recorded an interview with him this morning before he went to a uh, meeting with uh, PG&E. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play that, and then we'll talk about it. Are you ready? Sure, hit it. All right. Well, welcome to the Hammer Factor. We have Dave Steindorf from American Whitewater um, on the show today. Dave, how are you doing? Good, considering. Yes, considering. So there's uh, there's some national headlines um, that we're seeing out in uh, your zone. Tell us, uh, tell us what's going on. Well, uh, this whole event started last Tuesday when a uh, a hole, large hole, was created in the Oroville spillway on uh, uh, this part of the Oroville Dam complex. And Oroville Dam is the, the tallest dam in the country. Uh, it stores uh, three and a half million acre feet of water when it's completely full, which it is. Um, they had this hole and then they turned off the spillway for a bit to inspect it, uh, trying to see what they would be able to do out there. Meanwhile, the, the lake continued to rise. And then they realized that they essentially had to sacrifice the spillway. They had to run as much water as they could to get get water out of the reservoir. Uh, the inflows were about 100,000 CFS, and they were only getting out about 30 at that point. So it was it was raising very quickly. Now let me set the stage here a little bit more. So this is in Central California. Um, mm-hmm. What and two hours, an hour and a half from SAC. Something like hour that. and a half north of Sacramento. Hour and a half north of Sacramento. And uh, it's the Feather River drainage, which is the main drainage right. that flows into there. And you have had, tell me a little bit about the rainy season you've had so far, that what led up to the lake being full and this hole that formed in the spillway. Right. So we're, we're in the middle of what, um, what appears to be the, the wettest year on record here in California. Uh, it really started back in October and just uh, a long series of, of storm events, uh, both cold and warm. You know, so we get a fair amount of snow, and then we get some rain events, and it melts off. Uh, so it's been it's been really wet out here. And so you said last week they had a hole formed in the spillway, and they had to shut down water completely, and then basically. Um, they couldn't pump out as much water was coming up. It filled into the emergency spillway. And then yesterday, things seemed to escalate into an evacuation. What happened there? 
Well, it, it, here's kind of the, the chronology on. So they had the hole in the spillway, and then they I think they were trying to see if they could save you know the the bulk of the spillway, and then they realized that they needed to evacuate water, and it essentially destroyed the bottom, oh probably the bottom at least half to a third of the spillway. Um, just tore out the concrete, ripped out the sidewalls. It started eroding into the the adjacent banks, the hillside. And it's important to know that this spillway is actually on a hillside. It's not directly on the dam. Right. So that's why DWR is saying dam's not in jeopardy. Um, but you know the amount of erosion that went into the river was was huge. So they were at least as much water as they could to get the the lake level down. Well, then we found out that the erosion started to undermine um, a couple of PG&E's uh, substantial power lines that go through this area. Um, there's two of them. Um, and from our sources that we know, they said that PG&E had very little notice about this. They actually went in and cut those, one of the power lines, took the lines out. They were still able to provide service to the area. But if the other one was compromised, um, it would black out a big chunk of Northern California. Wow. So at that point, they actually had to ratchet the flows back to save that power line. And when they did that, the lake level started coming up, you know, quickly again. Um, and eventually they had to use this, quote unquote, emergency spillway, which had never been used. And it's important to know that it's not really calling it a spillway. If they keep referring to that, that's sort of true. All it is, is it's essentially a concrete cap on the top of the dam where water has a place where it can spill over rather than just spilling over the earth and dam. But then it just washes down this hillside. Um, it's not armored. It's not lined. It just washes down the hillside into this little ephemeral drainage. Um, and at peak flows, it actually got up to about 12,000 CFS, creating another huge erosion problem down there. Wow. And because it's not lined, there was significant concern that, you know, it this water drops about 20 feet off of this concrete cap onto um, a small concrete apron, but then wash it down. There's a road that was there. It was completely washed away, um, and it started to road back up towards this point to where, you know, it could have eroded underneath the spillway, and that's when they decided to evacuate um, a big chunk of the entire Feather River corridor all the way down to Sacramento. Yeah, I saw that there were close to 200,000 people who were under this mandatory evacuation. That's no, I mean, that's a big deal to make that kind of, you know, to to be the guy who makes that call and to enforce that. Right. What, what you know, what, what's, what do you see happening now? Are the people going to be gone? It looks like some weather's coming in the next couple of days. What do you see playing out over the next week or so? Boy, I, I, it's hard to tell. Um, they are, I just got word this morning that the, the reservoir level is about two feet below this emergency spillway. Um, so they're trying to put, you know, a big of a hole as they can in Lake Orville, meaning, you know, create as much storage capacity uh, but again, their you know their facilities are are compromised, and so they're going to end up draining it as much as they can to take in not only this next storm, but we're still very early in the season. Um, I don't know if they're. I assume that they're going to let people go back, but it's going to be a tenuous situation for the rest of the year. Yeah, that's kind of the the picture I'm seeing is. Uh 
you know, when do you let your guard down on something like this? And it seems like you really can't, uh, you know, until you get that lake extremely low. And then what does this do to the whole system of dams, not only in that drainage, but across the state of California? Well, what's happening here, because Oroville, you know, as soon as it's important to know that as soon as the water starts going into the emergency or uncontrolled spillway, uh, Oroville, which is the second largest reservoir in the state, no longer provides any uh, flood control. It's just a wide spot in the river. Whatever's coming into the reservoir is going out. So it has no flood control capacity. To make up for that, they need to create additional flood control capacity in the other reservoirs, meaning Shasta, Bullard's Bar, uh, potentially Folsom. So in advance of this, they were all dropping, dumping a bunch of water as much as they could to take up for the possibility of Oroville cresting, or in the worst case scenario, if that emergency spillway were to breach, uh, certainly you'd have 500,000 acre feet of water, probably several hundred thousand CFS going down the Feather River, which would have been, Sacramento would have flooded. I mean, it would have been a complete disaster and that could still be looming. And so it's kind of interesting that there, what does this do for water management? Um, how do I say this? Water management throughout the year. If they're forced to keep the lake levels down, then you go into a dry period with lake levels down. How does how does all this play out? Is the is it just kind of the infrastructure screwed right now? What's well, the, the the grand irony is here we are in the wettest year on record, and we could end up with a bunch of half empty reservoirs because of this failure, hmm. and um, because they have to keep those other reservoirs lower to make up for the diminished flood control capacity at Oroville. And so they're dropping water out of Shasta, again, Bullard's Bar, these other reservoirs. So they may end up where they're not quite full. And that would really be a disaster. And, and, and John, it, it's really interesting, but more importantly, frustrating that we've been having this big discussion in California about new dams and, and you know, why we might need them. But the reality is we need to shore up our existing infrastructure. Um, you know, the, this failure is going to have huge impacts across the board in terms of flood control, ability to store water. Um, and the other thing that's frustrating is this particular event was actually pointed out over a decade ago at the possibility for this type of a disaster because of the fact that Orville has this unlined spillway. So what do you mean by that? There was a group of what? what, what? Well, this dam went through the uh, FERC relicensing process that American Whitewater has been very involved in across the country. And during that process, um, a number of groups, including Friends of the River and, and several others, pointed out the fact that you, your emergency spillway, again, isn't really a spillway. It's just this concrete cap on top of the dam. Um, and that if you had to use it, it would compromise your structures and everything else downstream. I mean, the fact that there are, are power lines that were in the middle of this spillway is crazy, right? I mean, you wouldn't want to put something like that, another part piece of infrastructure on top of another piece of infrastructure that's suspect. And this was pointed out during that relicensing process, and they filed um, you know, a letter with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission saying, this is a problem, you need to fix it. And is this just, we just don't have the money for our infrastructure, blow it off kind of thing? Yep. Well, I don't know. I know that you have a meeting with PG&E and, uh, and 
this was kind of a last minute interview, but I certainly appreciate that perspective. Um, where do we follow? Where, where can we keep up to date information on this as the next storm rolls through and follow it? Because this is a, this is a big deal. This is the biggest, this is the tallest dam in the United States. This is no, uh, this is no pond behind your house. Well, it's, you know, the, the eyes of the world are now focused on Oroville. So I think there's going to be plenty of coverage. Um, Again, if we dodge this bullet, what's going to be interesting is to see what the follow-up is here and what the what the long-term response is. I mean, it's I don't know how long it's going to take to fix that spillway that's up there. Um, it, you know, they're saying that they would like to have it repaired within a year, but I, I don't even know what that repair looks like. Um, and then there's all the debris that's gone, and that the, the Feather River is going to be compromised in terms of. Um, the salmon population that's down there, that's could be years of recovery. So this is, this is going to be an ongoing disaster that, that keeps impacting for quite a while. Wow. I am, uh, I am super, you know, just hoping the best for everybody who lives downstream of that. And hopefully, I mean, you know, it just doesn't look like the weather is going to be letting up. I checked out some long-term forecasts this morning. And it looks like there's some rain coming Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, then a couple of days of clear weather, and then another system coming through. So. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. All, right, All well, right. Well, well, I'll let you get to your day, Dave, and I certainly appreciate the time. All right. You're welcome. You take care, John. All righty. All right. Big thanks to Dave for coming on the show. Um, big disaster looming out there in California. Um, that's something certainly we'll be checking in on at later dates. Um, I don't know. Have you guys ever heard of any kind of dam disasters or anything like this in in recent history? Godzilla movies. I mean, you always see like a dam breaking <laughs> in a Godzilla movie. Have you ever read that? I'm not uh, trying that's... to make a joke of the situation, but I mean, it's not something really. I mean, I don't know. It sounds like our infrastructure in general is kind of hurting in this in this country. Bridges, have ever, dams. Have you ever read that Buffalo Creek Mine disaster book about uh, that dam burst in West Virginia? No. It was like mm-hmm. I can't remember when it when it's set but it was uh, like a tailings pond or something like that for a mining operation that burst and just like swept away an entire town good read check it out if you really want to get fired up about the coal industry read buffalo creek mine disaster something like that i think i've heard of that look it up it's a good read well moving on there's a post that came across facebook and uh we're lucky to actually have Kara on the show this week, and we're gonna we may have to dive into this topic a little more in later shows. But uh, it's a post by a raft guide named Jennifer Kudnick, and I'm just gonna start out by reading this. And it kind of gets into you know just women on the river and women in paddle sports in general. So I'm gonna go ahead and read this. Um, Jennifer Kudnick posted this on Facebook. It's a really cool picture of her holding her uh, her. Uh, raft guide paddle she's decked out in her gear looks awesome and uh the text says i've been called river diva i've been called last chance hollywood cuddleneck i haven't been called i have been called bitch and every other demeaning name under the sun i've been told i don't belong on the river never mind that i've achieved numerous cer- certifications have many years of an, and have many years of experience i will never be hired at certain companies in canada switzerland and italy all for the single reason that they don't hire women I have heard the disappointment in a customer's voice when they realize they, quote, have gotten the girl guide, end quotes. I prove them wrong every single time. However, I shouldn't have to. Me being a female guide isn't the problem. The outdated notion of what a woman should be or can do is the problem. 
I'm exactly where I should be, doing what I love. I've been called Adventure Barbie, but make no mistake, I am no Barbie doll. Pretty powerful little post right there. Um, what do you guys think about that one? It's legit. I mean, it seems pretty legit to me. I mean, Carrie, you're a woman. You've 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 been in the industry for a long time. You've taught tons of kayaking. You you were on the you know you've paddled and on the world stage and slalom. What's what's your experience with this kind of thing? Oh. Yeah, definitely experienced. Um, I mean, the the disappointment at having a girl guide or girl instructor or whatnot. I mean, I saw that time and time again. Um, yeah, uh, I don't. You know, I don't think it's a it's an outdoor industry thing alone. I mean, maybe it, we're certainly in more of a male dominated sport, but I think uh, women experience this this in. Well, I mean, I even even owning Riversport, people always assume it's John's company. I are. Yeah, uh, immersion research. Sorry, <laughs> I was thinking about <laughs> teaching kayaking. So yeah, it, it's yeah prevalent for sure. Like specifically, is is there ever been a time when someone just was declining your service, or you've ever just been shut down, or has it ever been like that blatant? Yeah, I have, I have many stories, but one of my favorites is um, uh, I was teaching kayaking at Riversport, my my parents' kayak school up here on the Yacht, and um, I was probably, I don't know, maybe 19 or 20 or so, and it was early spring, and um, I had to uh, come up and teach an intermediate kayak class, and it was three three guys. And, um, I showed up and my dad, you know, was there, you know, running, running the place and introduced them to me and they took a step back and particularly one of the guys said, we're not going with her. We're not going with that little girl on the river. <laughs> and my dad was pretty pissed. I, I was a little taken, just wasn't sure what to do. And, uh, he was pissed and he just said, well, that's, that's all you, that's all I have. You want to take your lesson today or you can go home. I'm going to go with her. And so they decided to go. We loaded the boats, and um, the river the river was uh, was uh, spring runoff, and the rivers were high. And there were two choices that day. And I suggested that we take we go to the easier river the first day to work on some technical stuff, let the river drop a little bit, and go to the other harder a little bit harder river the second day. And they they would have none of that because the they said that I didn't want to go on the harder river. Oh God. So they thought they were going to get me out there and terrorize me. I don't know. I'm not sure what their, their thought was. I said, all right, bring it. Let's go. So, so continue. I'm, you know, I'm driving the van, you know, and lo loading boats, doing the whole thing. Just I'm fuming, but, um, we get on the water and <laughs> it just, circumstances were beautiful. We get to the first rapid, you come around the bend and it's really high water. And the first rapid becomes just this monstrous hole. And of course I <laughs> warned them. <laughs> I wasn't trying to get anybody in trouble. I'm doing my job. You need to work your way left here, you know, blah, blah, blah. The, the most outspoken of, of these three men um, goes right into the hole and just starts getting window shaded, swims. He's still getting recirculated in the hole. He's coming up, his eyeballs are gigantic. So I paddle up into the hole have him grab onto my boat and surf out of this thing. It's huge. It's a huge hole. Surf him out. 
he's, you know, gasping for air, you know, didn't have to pump water out of his lungs, but he was close. I mean, he, he had a bad swim. It wasn't, it was not pretty. Um, well, they're, they, they changed their tune. <laughs> they changed their tune. <laughs> yeah, I, I even think I got a tip at the end of the week. <laughs> well, you certainly should. I, you know, I, it's, it's hard for me to, to you know, the, the little outlets that I have and things like this podcast or the Green Race. Like if you go to the Green Race Facebook page right now, I've got all the ladies who raced on the top banner. And, you know, we're always trying to support the ladies as much as possible. But to see things like this and to hear those stories, it looks like we're kind of the minority. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't quite know how to fix that. I don't know. It's so is. it's so hard to even like respond to something like that Facebook post because it's it's like the behavior she's talking about is so indefensible, right? It's like what do you yeah. even say? You yeah. know, you're just like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's terrible. Like, yeah. I don't know, you know. It, I mean, it's not all the time, certainly, but it's there. It is there, and you, as a woman, you can't not be aware of it. You you can't. I, I'd be surprised if anybody that's a river professional hasn't experienced that in some way. I I just see how many times you know you mentioned this earlier how many times I've been standing next to you and people have come up to us and introduce me as the owner of IR was you just sort of standing there looking at them you know I mean that happens all the time and it's just an it's just a, a like a cultural assumption you know like if it's a doctor it's a guy. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, interesting. Well, I know on this show, I always introduce Kara as the owner. Have you ever heard that? Kara? Yes, you do. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the other the other side of it's a little more systemic is the difficulty of getting, you know, gear as as a, a woman paddler. You know, I mean, there's just not a lot of options out there. I mean, and there's some real technical obstacles, but I mean, we were talking about how great the brap was you know but that's a boat you'll never get to paddle you know at least not made for someone your weight Mm-mm. you know yeah you'll never never get to feel it and i think you know i think it, it's slowly over time that's changing but you know there is no doubt that i mean you know, there's certainly not i mean there's a couple women specific spray skirts there's some small shafted paddles for smaller hands and mm-hmm. then that's that's really about it it seems like i mean the th- i mean the, the thing is though there's is we need more more participate uh, participation though you know it's it's not cost effective to make gear for a really small market i mean that's kind of the, the other side of that you know so yeah i don't know what do you do is the correct response to to make more gear and hopefully the market grows you have to wait for the market to grow to make more gear I don't know. I mean, the, the sport. I mean, I guess the question is, and Kara, I don't know. You can you can answer this better than anybody. Do you think the correct response is is that as as industry people, we should be actively investing in women specific gear, even if that means losing money, in the in the in the hope that ten years or five years or some point down the road, it'll 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 have its benefits. Because right I mean, now, I don't think making the gear is gonna is gonna increase, you know. Um, participation. I think, um, I, you know, I wish I knew some statistics on this, but I see more and more women on the river every year. I don't know. Oh. You guys see that? Oh yeah. I agree with that. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's pretty amazing out here. Just the, 
the badass community of girl paddlers. Yeah. And, you know, just like killing it really hard, but also being super supportive of, you know, people who are just starting. And it's, it's pretty cool to see. Do the women paddlers hang together? I mean, is it sort of like a click or, or is it, is it not that delineated? It's not, it's not that, you know, some, you know, there's definitely pairs of girls and guys, but you know, I see around here, a lot of the girls kind of instigating the trips, you know, meet it, meet me here. I got, you know, I got three hours to go paddling. It's, uh, you know, I feel like six, eight years ago, 10 years ago, there was a group of guys who were pulling the girls with them and it's kind of evening out here. You know, the mm-hmm. girls are, the girls are coming up with the idea or, you know, putting the yeah. time away to make it happen. So maybe. I feel that way here too. Like, I feel like there's some seriously hardcore female paddlers in the gorge. Like who's, what are some names that are, that stand out is, is women who are really charging. Um, in the southeast, either one. Well, we've got a you know around here. You every everybody knows Adrian, um, but we've got Rowan Stewart, Aaron Savage, M. Cat Fields. I mean, there is there's probably a dozen girls around this zone who are hitting it pretty hard, and you know, it, really, what I see is they're not getting pulled onto the river by a group of guys. They're 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 planning their own trips and going and doing their own thing. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Galvin, you got a whole crew out there. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same, you know. I mean, I think there's some some chargers for sure. There's some kind of like intermediate paddlers. And I mean, to me, what I think is really cool is, you know, I, I don't want to like tell the story in like a, <laughs> like a dude-centric way, but I feel like there's, you know, like a lot of the times somebody will move to town who's like dating one of the bro paddlers and like all the awesome girl kayakers will like, you know, take this new girl like under their wing and like teach her to paddle. And there was like this whole spectrum of girls from like running class five every day to just getting started in the sport. And they all like support each other really well. And, you know, I, I sometimes it's like a massive group of girls paddling. Sometimes it's just like a mixed group. It just, it seems like pretty healthy to me. I don't know. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I'm not totally. I don't feel like totally qualified to opine on it. I guess, but it's it seems cool. Uh, around here, I'll tell you. I um, you know, I, you know, you guys know I've been paddling since like the 30s or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you used to see a girl on the river, and you knew her, you know, and that you know it was kind of remarkable. And now every every time I go out, upper yacht, lower yacht, cheat narrows, whatever. Um, with my kids or what there's, there's, there's women paddlers that I don't even know in this small paddling world here, you know, every time I think, you know, and I was, and I think that the gear is important because, um, it's extending the season, you know, like it, it's a small woman as a small woman, you couldn't, I couldn't get stuff to keep me warm or dry. Um, when I started paddling and, and for a long, long time, um, and like I see these guys doing dawn patrols and in, in dry suits, dry suits in general, I think is, it's been huge for paddling everywhere in terms of extending the season, of course. But these guys, uh, these these girls and and women are um, out there all seasons, which is something right. that you know you didn't see. Um, it's not the same as just being you know in the summertime on a warm day. Uh, it's made a lot more accessible to everybody, um, and it's it's uh, the sport is 
everyone talks about how small it is, but um, I think people are more um, passionate about it, and that allows that to happen. Yeah, I think you have to be passionate to be a whitewater kayaker. Let me ask ask you this. Is IR the first company that ever made women-specific paddling gear? No, we couldn't be. I mean... Coconut has made, has made women's dry yeah. suits forever. And in Europe. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember IR coming out with some of the first, uh, you know, just color combinations and smaller fitting gear. Long, long time ago. So I didn't. It's the first I saw that was ever put mm-hmm. out there. But maybe that's because I wasn't close to you guys. I'm not sure. Kara, how do you feel like it sort of compares to when you were racing slalom? I mean, I'm just sort of thinking back, like when you were telling that story about you know, taking those dudes out on the Castleman or, you know, I was thinking about, you know, I remember going to like the Pen Cup races when I was little and having you coach us all up. And, you know, I feel like when I was pretty young, like, I mean, I'd learned a ton from you and I was, I mean, you're not too much older than me, but old enough that when I was really little, you were already really good at kayaking, you know? And like, I mean, I just remember thinking back, like when I was first getting into slalom, you know, like you and Donna and Kathy and, Kirsten Brown, and I mean, I just feel like there were a lot of, you know, like Amy Ivers, just a lot of kind of badass women paddlers who were, you know, really influential for us when we were kids. And I think that was something that was pretty cool. But there were, there were, you know, like Kathy and Donna, and and even before that, it, you know, um, I think I stayed somewhat isolated from being treated. Um, um, you know, in a sexist way by other paddlers because of that slalom world that we were in. Um, I remember having a conversation with, with John a couple years ago and I was remembering back to those, that, that part of my life and me, yeah, with you. Yeah. With, um, and, um, I remember, I, I just, I forget what brought it up, but we were talking about being treated, um, we were talking, I think we were talking about in terms of IR and how somebody, I think somebody had just said, this is John's company and I was standing right there and, and John's, yeah. And it got into that conversation and I, and I thought, you know, I know, I don't think I, other than that, I haven't really been treated like that kayaking. And, and, and because I was thinking about that time slalom, you know, we, um, that came with some respect that, um, because like, like you were Kathy. objectively so much better than like <laughs> <laughs> why? But, you know, everybody else. Right. You know? Well, the right. thing is, I mean, it shouldn't why depend do I, on why that. Why do we have to prove? Right. Yeah. Why yeah. do we have to prove ourselves? Yeah, I you think know? that's the elephant in the room, right there. Problem, right. Right. And I know you know that's yeah. That's, but even in slalom, though, I mean, you were like the dubs. I mean, that was that was a well, derogatory term. You know what I mean? That Came is the dubs. That was had a flavor of inferiority about it you know what i mean it did it didn't some people thought it did and some people didn't but yeah i think it started out being a little derogatory the dubs for w k1w we were just called the dubs and there were certain people that definitely um yeah you know the dubs can't make that move you change the course and the dubs <laughs> but that very quickly i think turn you know i don't i don't think it carried the same the doves. Wait, especially because the doves were so good. The doves getting medals in the Olympics, right? There was. <laughs> I had two. I had two eye-opening experiences 
uh, paddling early on. The first was going out west and thinking I could wear like a t-shirt paddling and everyone out west was a pussy for wearing a dry top. <laughs> the second was was, uh, <laughs> was doing going to the feeder canal, which is a class one flat water slalom course with Kara where we started dating. And I was thinking, I don't care how good she is, I could probably take her, you know, because I got about <laughs> 60 pounds. You know what I mean? And it wasn't even close. I mean, it wasn't even, <laughs> it was just a, it was just a, a an, Annihilation, like a five gate course. <laughs> she was at the, at the end drinking a beer, laughing. <laughs> I was still struggling. Good time. I don't know why this sticks out in my memory. But I remember, like, really high water Potomac when I was pretty young and seeing seeing John, you and Kara going and paddling up the gorge, and you were in some like borrowed slalom boat from you know when you were working at Valley Mill Boats. Yeah, and just remember having distinctly having the vibe of being like, oh, like, like there's Kara and like, like Kara's boyfriend trying to keep up with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so awesome. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about slalom real quick. Subject, because this has been sort of a reoccurring trope here on the, on the hammer factor, because I know Lewis feels this way and I know I feel this way. I feel like slalom is one of the maybe tragic stories of our sport. Uh, because of how much value slalom offers to whitewater kayaking in general and how it's been completely decimated as a sport in this country. I mean, there's nothing left. Um, right. Am I, am I, Lewis, am I speaking out of line here? And it seems like a, it seems like a huge resource is being neglected. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. People, people look at, like I want to get better at running whitewater, and they, and they don't realize how how much better they can get on on a slalom course. Never mind the actual event slalom is as as a as a competitive event in and of itself. I mean, there's so many things. There's so many. I mean, I, I'm interested to hear what Kara has to say for sure, but I I just feel like there's so many factors. You know, like starting with you know, I think that there is an appetite out there now in the broader paddling community to get some exposure to slalom, and there's just no opportunities. You know, I mean, there's probably a half dozen of us who live here in the gorge who race slalom at one time or another would love to have some gates here but just finding a place to hang gates and maintaining them and dealing with that is like it's a much bigger undertaking than you think it is you know just to find somewhere where there's not fishermen or not the water doesn't fluctuate right and you know the sport of slalom it's just it's just totally isolated itself from the rest of the sport. It's like, it's this thing that happens on a concrete channel in Oklahoma city now, instead of something that is a part of the broader community. And it's, it's very hard to reverse that without a lot of resources. I think, I don't know. What do you think, Kara? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think the, well, yeah, it's, there's so many factors. I think if we could hang gates somewhere in Morgantown, I think that it would be very well, well used. I think people would get sucked in, you know, there'd be like the initial, like, I don't want to do a workout. No, that's not for me. But you, you know, it's like anything, you try it and you realize how difficult it is and how much better it's going to make you really, really quickly. Um, uh, and who knows where that would go in terms of the competitive part of the sport. Like if that's ever going to come back or what the solution is there, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. But, 
Um, man, I, I wish so much that we had some gates around, especially having the kids and they're all, my kids have a whole group of friends now that want to get into kayaking. They're all going kayaking. And I just look, Oh, I could teach these kids so much on the gate. You know, do you guys have any gates in Asheville in the Asheville area? Anywhere? Uh, There are a couple, um, on some sections of the French broad, but you know, for what I think, what I, what I see is the biggest kind of impediment to that is, in whitewater, and you don't see this in other outdoor sports, and I think we've touched on this before, is that the the fitness aspect of whitewater is overlooked. Nobody okay. nobody wants to get a workout, you know, and doing gates or going doing entertainments or that kind of thing is essentially a workout. It makes you so much better. You know, you're so I mean, much Kara, you were taught you talk with us constantly about the level of athleticism in your typical extreme racer and how lax it is and how much more you know how much harder people could go if they trained a little bit and that shift is changing you know what i mean and and i and i agree 100 percent with care and it is it is changing people are you know but i think a big thing is like i think that when people start to train and are looking for gain you know gains in their performance it's going to be more natural to take the interest in setting up some gates and working those out you know, that's, I don't know how to quite say what I'm saying. There's like a disconnect yeah. between fitness and whitewater. Mm-hmm. Kind yeah. of- I think it's a, I think it's a funny thing about kayaking. Like, I think if you looked at, if you wanted to be like a really good surfer or a really good skier, or a really good climber, like you have to be fit and like, you can be like a really good kayaker and be of pretty mediocre fitness. I feel like, I mean, I don't think you can be just like a fat slob, but <laughs> you could be, you know, pretty, pretty average. And, but like, what do you tell someone, like, what's your advice to like, there's a whole class of sort of circuit extreme race paddlers, your Calhouns, your Jason Beekses, your Isaacs, you know, and all All these guys guys, have a background in racing. All these guys have a background in racing, but they're certainly not training. Not, not in the, not in the sense that I recognize training, you know, agreed. What do you tell them? I mean, what's the message? What, I mean, those guys? They, ha- like I mean, they had that base, you know. The- but it seems like yeah, an I mean, opportunity for someone to, to come in who's like, it. I'm going to train six hours a day and I'm going to clean this clean this act up. You know what I mean? I'm going to dominate this sport. Yeah. Get all the, all, all the sweet sponsor dollars and right. recognition like, and everything that comes with that. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> well, how, how, many, how, many, how many hours did Isaac work last week, would you suppose? I mean, <laughs> work. i mean he's a busy guy and i don't want to rip on isaac but i'm sure he has a few hours during the week he could squeeze in some some training you know what i mean yeah well i guess you know i guess i guess i guess i guess where it comes back to is you know there's this there's this group that once a week meets and does attainments or does a workout at the french broad but the group is called the beer league you know, so it's so it's still like not really a kayak training group or whatever, even though they're getting together and it's better than nothing. But there's more and more people there at that group all the time. Sometimes there'll be 30 people there. And, oh, wow. Cool. It, and, you know, so, you know, I think that shift is happening. I think what people are realizing is that it's just safer. Like it's safer when you're in shape and you're tuned up to go kayaking. Don't worry about your throw rope. It's more fun. And it's more fun and the whole nine yards. So I think that that kind of uh, connection is being made. And if, you know, I, it's kind of just like with women in the sports. I think the athleticism is, is on the uptick, but hell, what do I know? 
know. Just my observation. Yeah, I think so too. I think, you know, because uh, boaters tend to be climbers and bikers and that fitness aspect um, is starting to permeate into kayaking, but it isn't, uh, it, and, and not, not just people are doing extreme races. Um, but I don't think it was there. Like, I think that's something really new and, and yeah, I think you touched, touched on that for sure. But I also see like when I'm watching some footage of extreme races, there's, there's fitness and there's technique. And I mean, you can tell somebody's had a slalom background in an, in an instant and in their forward stroke and their stroke placement. And I'm, I always wonder why some, some of these guys that are in girls that are at the top of the extreme, um, are, aren't, I, I don't know how you work on technique without doing it in slalom. I don't know. Interesting. What do you, with, what do you think, Lewis? Um, but I always, I always see some opportunity there for, for, for improvement. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like, I think that the overall level of technique among high-level whitewater paddlers has gotten much, much better. Like, I feel like when, you know, 15 years ago, you would see the guys who were, or 20 years ago, who were just whitewater paddlers and didn't have any slalom background, and their technique was, like, not so great. And you look at somebody like Gerd, and you would be hard-pressed to know that he didn't have a slalom background. So... And I don't know, I feel that way about a lot of the kind of top guys now is I think that the level of technique has just gotten much, much better. And I'm not, I'm not totally sure where that comes from. Like maybe it's just sort of the ubiquity of video, but. No, I think, I mean, I think it's a certain level to run the level of whitewater these guys are running. I mean, you know, I mean, I think 15 years ago, you had like these falling down production types, you know, where people sort of like sliding down these you know, yeah. these 60 foot three inch yeah. deep slides, you know what I mean? Which maybe didn't really require a, a huge amount of technique, but some of these rapids these guys are running to do that consistently day after day, year after year, you have to be analyzing the water. You know what I mean? And analyzing the trajectory of your boat through current, through eddies, through holes, just like a slalom paddler and anticipating, yeah. you know, four different, you know, vectors ahead, how your boats can be placed as you hit the crux of a rapid, which is very much a slalom mentality. But there's no way you could do that without thinking of a rapid that way. And I think that's what's making these guys so good is they're actually, you know, they've approached the, 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 the class five rapid that way. But it's a shame that, I mean, I guess the, the missing opportunity here is it, it probably, probably could have, you know, achieve that, that that level of river eating skill much more efficiently and thoroughly a lot sooner with with some tra- you know real training. Yeah, I, you know, I, you know, I think that I think that when you're at that level, just doing that kind of kayaking day in and day out is training. It's hard to beat that training. I mean, that's really training doing that. You know, yeah, I mean, you're or, not or running that kind or Evan, are these guys doing. Uh, training besides paddling? I mean, are they taking paddling that seriously where they're well, trying to take fitness into consideration or is it just incidental? Well, I think if you're paddling the stikine every day for two weeks straight, you're going to get fit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to mimic that on a slalom course in defense of that, you know, like how do you, how right. many sprints are you doing on a lap down there? You know what I mean? A lot. But, and you're not running class that kind of class five in in not thinking about where your boat's going to go next. Yeah. I mean and, that and, that technique when you're run, you're running stuff at that level, you, you're not you can't have crappy technique. Yeah. And I think those twenty or thirty people 
are, you know, they're, they're definitely, while they might not be flat water fitness or a certain fitness in a gym, they're doing a workout that's just over and over and over, you know? So, but I, it, to me, it's the whole other group, the other group of yeah. people that are on the, on the class five round that are losing a lot if they just go out and get on some gates or just some attainments for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, it's for me, you know, you take, you take someone who's, or more likely someone joins your party on a difficult run and two thirds of the way down, you can see this person's exhausted. Yeah. You know I mean? They just don't have it mm-hmm. in them to do one more really hard boof stroke or, the, you know, that surprise, you know, pull out of a hole that took it by surprise. It's just gone. The energy's gone. You know what I mean? Um, and the fitness is, is just killing them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think there's something, I think there's something there and I think, you know, to kind of sum that up because we're kind of reaching our rants and raves spot is I think that fitness is coming back a little bit of whitewater and I know there's a lot more ladies on the, on the river. So I think that's rad. I love guiding. <laughs> I'm really just into talking about it on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> dude, there's no yeah. kayaking in the southeast anymore, man. It's it's done down here, dude. It's done. So anyway, I'm coming your way, Lewis. It's just a matter of time. I'm working it out. Sick. Um, uh, rants and raves, Kara. You got any rants and raves? Um, I have I have a rave. I can do. I like okay. Kara gives some some time to uh, gather her thoughts. Yeah, uh, Adachi bench shaft paddle, 204, 45 degree offset, left hand control, boom. <laughs> Did you probably? Get it? Yeah, it's a work of art. Dude, how much better? I mean, like, not you know, it's a big difference between the Adachi and the Shogun. You got to admit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little weird flop to the paddle. I'm not used to, but it's not. It's totally, totally manageable. And I will point out, Danny was in complete agreement with Danny Mungo from Werner. Was in complete agreement with me regarding the bench half, and he wanted to point out that uh, he thinks it's the way to go. Actually, he didn't want me to do anything. I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but uh, but I think we're in agreement there about that one. You suckers don't know what you're talking about. Jesus Christ, Karen, you don't still use a bench half, do you? No. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kara, Let's could you let go. the men talk, please? Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad we have Kara, owner of Immersion Research and Straight Shaft Battler. On the line Do you oh. hear the disdain at which that was thrown out? Oh. <sighs> All right, that was All my. Right. There's my rave. Yeah. Lewis, Gentlemen, what do you got? Come on. My rant is that nobody in this town will get up in the morning. It drives me nuts, man. All I want to do is go in the little way before I go to work. And I'm like, meet me at the takeout at 7. It's not un- unreasonably early. You get up at 6, you make coffee, you can have breakfast, meet at the takeout at 7. And it is like like pulling freaking teeth. <laughs> Nobody in this town has a job. Nobody has... Yeah, I was say, does anybody work? Everybody wants to go at 10 o'clock or like 11 o'clock. I'm like, it's Monday. I got to go. I got to work. Like, let's go at, at seven. No, work. Gotta... <laughs> Plays nasty hey, little twin brother. Work. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Oh, yeah, it drives me nuts. But on the plus side, even, 
even going mountain biking here in the morning, the trails will be like packed by the afternoon. But if you go ride at seven in the morning, there's nobody there because nobody here works. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I have no idea how it works. It must be nice. <laughs> when you figure out how that works, let me know. Uh, Coming out. Not I know work. how it works. There's like a secret handshake. Once you learn the secret handshake, you don't have to buy groceries. You don't have to pay for gas. You don't have to pay rent. You just, you just flash in the secret handshake and they just wave you through. They're like, you go get ahead. the Sprinter van? Yep. Get the Sprinter van. Well, I want to rave about my new Manny. What? <laughs> we got our new we got our new Manny. Manny? All right. Not a nanny, a Manny. We're talking about Manny. we're talking about like you know. Is he you know? Is women, he women in the workplace? And <laughs> Does he have his paperwork? <laughs> and all that stuff. Like we have a Manny. He, you know, he comes he in the house. Just... He, he's he's got like this great cologne he wears. He's awesome. If he doesn't have his paperwork, he better not leave the house. You know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's it for Hammer Factor episode 15. Thanks so much for coming on, Kara. And uh, Thanks for having me. You know, we it was coincidence that we were talking about women's issues, but women can come, in, come on here and talk about non-women issues too. Right. Yeah, yeah we're, we're we're done with the sausage yes. fest. We are done with the oh. sausage fest. Sausage. That was my suggestion. Is I just wanted you to come on and that tell hates. us about how big of an idiots we are on everything we're talking about all the time. John, John <laughs> that, that's reserved like for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> she pulls out a little note list. She's like, okay. First of all, no, I love it. You guys are awesome, Lewis. I'm so proud of you. Oh, thanks, Gary. Hey, well. Really? <laughs> Well, thanks for, thanks for listening to The Hammer Factor, and uh, please be sure to subscribe, and we will see you next week. <laughs>